Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hello and welcome to the third episode for the month of July. How lucky are you guys? July just so happens to have five Mondays and so you have three episodes in one month. So I hope you enjoyed the last episode that I did live uh, on my Facebook group, Junior Doctors Corner Community. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it live, um, I have already published the episode, so you can check it out on the website. As I alluded to in that episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Caroline Elton. So let's jump right into that episode. Hello, Dr. Caroline Elton. Thank you so much for joining us on Junior Doctors Corner. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So for those who haven't had the privilege and pleasure to, you know, have met you and gotten to know you yet and the wonderful work you do for doctors, can you please tell them a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a psychologist and I specialize in one in the UK we call occupational psychology. I think in um, Australia, sometimes known as vocational psychology. So I'm interested in all the kind of psychological aspects of work. And although in an earlier part of my career, I worked with people, clients from all sorts of different professions, for the last 20 years, by a series of, of strange events, really, I've ended up just concentrating on doctors with the very occasional dentist. In addition to career planning, or as you mentioned, vocational planning and counseling for doctors, you've also written a book called Also Human, The Inner Lives of Doctors. Can you please tell us a bit about the book and why you've written it? For about eight years, um, I worked in two different NHS, National Health Service, services in the UK, uh, setting up a, a, a support service for doctors who were having difficulties with their careers. So I had the experience of sitting in, and, and latterly for the six of those eight years, I was uh, worked in central London and the service I set up and ran was a panel London service, cost about 80 hospitals. And so I had the experience of sitting in a room in central London, just listening to doctors talking about their work and the sorts of difficulties they were encountering. And I felt that although there's some wonderful accounts by doctors and medical memoirs, particularly of junior doctors, actually, but some more senior, there weren't really any books that were just giving voice to these sorts of issues that doctors were talking about day in, day out uh, to me. And so the sorts of things were like the aftermath of a mistake, feeling that they were just so stretched because there weren't enough resources, feeling that maybe they'd chosen the wrong specialty, issues around trying to combine family with being a doctor, all those sorts of things. Um, and so I got it into my head that um, it would be a good idea to write a book, which is what I did. I am reading your book at the moment. And in the first chapter, you described a 
a horrific experience uh, by an F1 or, you know, in Australia, we call it interns, um, named Bella. Um, so whilst what happened to her was terribly unjust and what baffled me the most about uh, it was the part where you pointed out that her kind of experience is not new at all. In fact, it is a global phenomenon. In your opinion, why do you think medicine hasn't progressed or changed in that respect? Um, I think, I mean, it's a really difficult and a big question to answer, but I think, and this is the kind of conclusion in the book, that there's been what I term a cyclectomy, which is a made-up word of, of my own, but the as doctors can do more and more, and the things that you know that you are able to do um, are, are really quite extraordinary in the growth really since the 19th century now to the 21st century. We're talking about chemotherapy, whether we're talking about heart transplantation, whether we're talking about antibiotics, whatever. Extraordinary things that can be done. Somehow those have overshadowed uh, giving attention to the psychological demands of the work. And they are just minimized and overlooked. Although I think maybe there's a little bit of a, a, a sea change. I think there's a little bit of a sea change going on at the moment, actually. Um, but I think that's the main thing, that all the concentration of tension has been everything on everything that doctors can do rather than looking at the emotional impact of these extraordinary things they can do. And therefore, from the emotional impact, really thinking about the sorts of support that they need in order to be able to uh, work and enjoy that work. Mm. I agree with you that there is a change happening uh, and hopefully for the better. Um, I have a little theory about this. Would you yeah, like I'd to hear it and um, tell me what you think sure, sure. about it? So, I mean, you have worked with doctors that are, you know, in very senior um, stages of their career and also doctors who have worked, uh, you know, very early on um, in their careers and past. So I don't know if you've come across this particular phenomenon, but um, I was discussing it with um, Dr. Eric Richmond um, a while back, and we were talking about the post-traumatic growth that I experienced after I had a horrible, horrible experience um, in intern year, and hence the birth of this podcast. Um, and I was telling him about how you know unfair it was that uh, many other junior doctors um, somehow, for some reason, have to almost go through what I go through. And some are lucky. They don't have to have a horrible experience in their early years. And I just cannot understand why senior doctors aren't doing anything to, you know, stop it or change it. And it's taking way too long for it to happen. Um, and the theory goes that, um, because in the past, all these senior doctors themselves have experienced um, or had a horrible time um, during their junior doctor's years, but have grown from it, um, you know, to say that um, we must change it or anything would be sort of minimizing them, um, if that makes sense. It's sort of trying to uh, almost dismiss what they went through. I think I think there is, and we, you know, 
there is there can be the culture well I went through it and it toughened me up yes so it's good for you I I think I think that that, I think that that is part of it but I also think that there is some psychological misunderstandings of the way in which from a psychological point of view the profession has become and I think there and and this is something that I touch on towards the end of the book but I'm this is something that I'm uh, really interested in at the moment and I'm researching and thinking about. Uh, I don't think it's the same job. I mean, my grandfather was a doctor. It's certainly, but I'm 61. So that was, a, he qualified in about 1918, so about 100 years ago. It's certainly not the same job as that he did. And I don't think it's the same job as uh, the job that uh, you guys are doing is the same job as my friends who are in their 60s who are coming up to retirement did either and and so some of these examples are very uh, UK centric but I will I will give a, a, a few of some of them are global I think. so um, medical schools have got much larger um, so that means that the support and being known and understood that that has diminished because certainly in the UK they've gone from 100 and 120 to 500 600 you can get lost you can start to sink below the radar then in again in the UK this may not map onto Australia you used to do your intern year and it used to just be a year um in the place where you're done med school. You don't do that anymore. You move all over the country. And there are bizarre mechanisms why the weakest doctors end up in the most difficult places, which we expand on, but it's rather a technicality. You used to do one year. You now do two years. You used to, the placement in intern used to be two times six months. It's now three times four months. So you're changing. The, there's the decline with the reduction of the hours, which is a good thing, and there's good evidence on that. The doctors are less likely to make mistakes they're less likely to kill themselves through exhaustion driving home. But with the reduction of the hours and the old-style firm of, uh, um, where that was a consistent team has now gone to more of a shift. So, so there are all these sorts of ways in which you are, uh, uh, some of the ways in which you are less supported. In addition, there are differences in the patient, the doctor-patient relationship. So there, there are pressures to, and I'm sure these are definitely the UK, definitely the US, I'm sure they're in Australia too. And there are financial pressures to get patients out of hospital as quickly, uh, as, as, quickly as possible. There are pressures to do more with less resources. There, the, the doctor-patient relationship, like other professional uh, relationships, be it with a vicar, the priest, or with the bank manager, or the accountant, there's less deference. I think deference was a certain sort of, cushion there are the patient comes in with much more information because of the information that is available on the net some of that is excellent information some of it is absolutely rubbish information but the patient doesn't necessarily um the they're they're just and and then we're much more litigious and Mm. there's much more monitoring there's much more bureaucratic paperwork there's electronic health record more, but it which often isn't paperwork, it's screen mm. work. But yeah, so there are all these reasons why the job, I think, from a psychological point of view, has become much, much tougher. Mm. And the, the job, I think, has become tougher, and I think the supports for doing the job are less. And that's, I think, why we see this absolute uh, explosion 
of burnout around the world. And the, the, the good news is that people are beginning to talk about, particularly in the U.S., um, where they're beginning to talk about that this is an absolute quality indicator. The well-being of the clinical workforce is an absolute, uh, it, it is essential. It's not an optional icing on the cake nicety. It is essential because, and I talk about it in the book, I call it as the first law of human dynamics as a sort of parallel was the first law of thermodynamics. You cannot care for somebody else if you are not cared for yourself can't be done it can be done on one day but over a period of time if you do not feel cared for and supported yourself it will impact on the quality of care you give and it will impact on how you feel one of the things that I learned about when I was in Australia in March was about reliever posts and I think that would be brilliant to bring into the UK and I've been talking a lot at conferences and meetings about that why don't we do it in the UK, you can, you can start a new rotation. Maybe it's a six-month rotation. depends on your stage of training. And you can say, my sister's getting married in whatever, in five months hence. And they can say, sorry, unless you can find somebody to swap with you tough, you've got to work that weekend. And that causes such understandable rage. And it's so corrosive morale. Why couldn't we have a reliever system where, you know, you could say right at the beginning, sister's getting married in four or five months time. Say, sure, you won't work. Because at the end of the day, doctors are humans too, and they have to live their lives as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's why, but it's, it's, I mean, I call the book also human rather than only human, because only human is, is a, uh, um, is, it diminishes. You say something, when you've made a mistake, oh, well, I'm only a human. Oh, well, he's only human. It's diminishing. It's, but actually also is about sharedness between the patient and the doctor. And it is through that sharedness that actually allows the healing component of to take place. It is through the shared humanity. Yes, and I think doctors who are in touch with human needs, um, I mean their own needs, are more aware and can care for patients a lot better. Um, undoubtedly, um, 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 undoubtedly, you know, the, the heroic model that we are something different and we have different needs from the patient. Ultimately, that's not sustainable. There was an article recently written by uh, one of our uh, very well-known plastic surgeons. She, she's uh, it's a female plastic surgeon who wrote about uh, how she was told by male colleagues or previous male supervisors that she cared too much, you know, being a female, she cared too much for her patients and she argues, um, you know, against it. And I do wonder whether this, I mean, I have met and I do know some very extremely caring male doctors, but medicine, you know, historically was a, a male profession and I wonder if all of this you know toughen up sort of um, attitudes come from the more stoic male generation. The first thing to say is that I think one has to distinguish between the mental stance when you're actually carrying out surgery or a procedure and then how you are in relation to that patient more generally. And definitely there needs to be a detachment at the point of doing plastic surgery, doing neurosurgery, doing an endoscopy or, 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 or whatever. You can't be so 
overwhelmed by uh, the humanness of the person to whom you're doing this procedure that it that it detracts from your attention. I, in, but I actually don't think that that is only applies to doctors. You know, if you think about the World Cup and somebody who's stepping forward on a penalty shootout with the, the world looking at them, they can't be thinking about the millions of players back home and how it's going to, you know, how you're going to disappoint them if you miss. So I think there are all sorts, if you're walking on a tightrope, there are all sorts of situations, actually, where you have to be able to block out thoughts about what happens if I get this wrong and just concentrate on the task. So that, however, I think that there is a, um, a myth that in order to be a good neurosurgeon, in order to be a good plastic surgeon, you, that, that, uh, that detachment, which is necessary in theatre, has to go out of theatre, to how you are with the patient more generally. And I don't think that that is right. I think that's because that is old-style medicine and many sort of heroic, typically men, have done, have behaved like that. But I think there is another way. But it's very, very threatening for men, to, for old-style, stereotypical surgeons, to see uh, women being highly capable and responding to their patients differently. So now, um, aside from the book, uh, we touched a little bit about um, your work when it comes to um, you do some career planning for doctors, particularly for doctors who have had a terrible time and feel like they can't go back to medicine. Um, and it's something that's, I think, not well understood or at least not um, a service that's not very commonly engaged here in Australia for junior doctors. So can you please tell us a little bit about what it actually involves? Well, I mean, what I, what I do is, is kind of fairly mainstream vocational uh, counselling, but with all my clients are doctors. And I, do, I see a lot of people who, who are thinking about leaving medicine a lot of those people don't end up leaving meds. Um, some do. And part, one of the things that one needs to do, my, I need to do in my job, is help somebody from making a very rash decision. Because the longer I do this work, the more I see that greyness is, is psychologically um, to, not toxic, is, 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 is aversive. People don't like living with uncertainty. And if they're unhappy at work, there can be an enormous inner drive to say, right, made my mind up, I'm, I'm quit, I'm quitting. There's a huge drive to do that. Right, I draw the line under here, I'm out. And sometimes, but sometimes if people are very, very distressed, uh, I often say to my clients, it's like, you know, if you, to make a, a, a really irrevocable or a major career decision when you're very, very distressed or very depressed, it's like building a house on jelly. It can't be done. So the first task is trying to get somebody back to a state of kind of psychological equilibrium. And if they are depressed or there's some other kind of mental illness, then part of what I do is I will be referring them to other colleagues who are dealing with that side of things and helping them not. I, my job will be to say, I don't think this is the moment for you to make a decision. We can start unpicking what's gone wrong and some of the things that you might want to get rid of in your job and some of the things you might want to add in. But this is not the moment for making that decision. 
So some, a lot more people say, I'm out of here than actually end up leaving. Um, a second principle that I've developed is that I want to help people identify the smaller shift for the greatest psychological gain. So change for change, there's no, there's no benefit of change for change's sake in the work that I do. Because if you're going to take on a job in a different line of work or whatever, there are going to be salary implications, there may be retraining implications, there's huge upheaval. So one wants to take the starting point, and if it is intolerable, one wants to make small steps, and not necessarily actually affecting them, but actually thinking about. One wants to think about and explore small steps, and then you look at the... I have an image of... Uh, of somebody sort of stepping back, like in that children's game, game grandmother's footsteps. They take a little bit of a few steps back. They survey the landscape. That's not quite right. So, for example, sometimes I've seen people who are just working in a toxic environment, and it's not actually they're in the wrong specialty. They may just be in a horrible, horrible, and that when somebody external, me, kind of starts to unravel it, they, they are just in a really dysfunctional and taking that specialty in another place may completely change that. And I've had clients, where even consultants, where that's happened. And, and you do that by really teasing out, really looking at in detail the things they love and the things they don't love. And the, if the things they love are very much about their work, about the, the nature of their work, then, then you, but, and some of the things that are getting them down about their interaction with with colleagues or whatever, you can begin to, and this is simplifying it, but you can begin to say, this isn't about your specialty. You're actually very happy as a radiologist. It's this department that you need to get rid of. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes working part-time, sometimes somebody I saw last week, they just had a baby, they've got postnatal depression, they're all sorts of other things, they move house, there's just too much else going on. And they, they might need a bit of time out of training just to kind of uh, gather strength and then think about. But at other times, there are things that are fundamentally wrong. And sometimes people just don't want patients. And then if you don't want patients, you can think about public health. You can think about lab-based specialties. And then going even further back, sometimes people aren't interested in health. And I, and I often say, I, you know, I've had doctors say to me, and I really admire them for this, I didn't realize there'd be so many sick people working as a doctor. <laughs> and I, it, it's both incredibly stupid and incredibly profound at the same time. Mm. It is, inc- mm. on one level, you can think, oh, duh, it's so dumb. <laughs> but on another level, it's actually saying something very profound because in the discussions you have as a 16 or 17 or 18-year-old when you're thinking of applying it's all around grades and where you're going to get in and are your scores going to be high enough. And then the family all getting interested and saying, that's great, you're going to be in medical school. And who is saying to you, hold on, hold on, let's just have a think about what this work really is. People aren't doing And I think it's hard if um, there's no one in the family who's actually in medicine or been in medicine. Um, I think as someone from the yeah. outside, it's hard to see all the ugly bits it just looks very glamorous superficially yeah and I've had clients I remember one guy whose parents were refugees from Vietnam and he was a really bright guy and he'd done really well in school and he got into med school 
and his parents ran the takeaway and they had to in London and they had to put up with hideous hours, horrible working conditions, people coming, falling out of the pub, being drunk and coming round to get their takeaway before they went home and being abusive. And, and he was overwhelmed by the work, overwhelmed by the responsibility. But when he tried to explain that to his father, his father was sort of saying, well, what's not to love about and um, during the um, workshop sort of session that you did with us at the MDA National Live Well, Work Well retreat, you talked a bit about med- medical students or junior doctors choose their career path. Sometimes they don't quite um, choose it for the right reasons or they're not choosing things, uh, a path that's suitable for them. Um, do you have any advice around that? The first thing is being brutally honest with yourself. You may have an idea that you'd like to be somebody who really likes, you know, the drama of, uh, uh, of, of the accident and emergency room, but in reality you don't. So being really, really honest with yourself is, is, is important. And then there are all sorts of different, uh, the different systems, different, aspects of work and of yourself that you need to think about when making a career decision. So first of all, you've got to, you've got to choose something that builds on things that you're naturally strong at. You want to, it's like a game of cards, you want to play to your stronger suit. So you need to think about the things that you've always got good feedback from and, and you've done well in. And, and for all sorts of other reasons, people don't always do. But that's the first thing. What, what, are, you, what, what, what are your natural strengths and abilities? skills the second the second thing is though is there can be things that you're good at that you're not necessarily very interested um and so you need to think amongst those things which i get good feedback for and i find come to me naturally what are the things i'm most interested in very often you can detect those by looking and within the medical training it's often micro things because you don't get a lot of choice and options or whatever and sometimes when you have a special study module or whatever, you've left it late and the end, what you've ended up doing is not really your choice anyway. But try to think about what are those things that interest me? So there's abilities and skills, there's interest. And then the third thing, and I think that I did some of this on the workshop, is what's important to you. Because there can be things that you're very good at and you're interested in but they may not be they may clash with some other key values that you have and those can be around uh, work-life integration they can be around location you know different specialties depending upon how competitive they are they may have implications on whether you can stay put or whether you're going to have to move all over the country Uh, they can they may have things to do with money and opportunities for private practice really important to some people, not important to others. It, it, and there's no, there's no criticism if financial stuff is important to you. The, the thing is, you've got to be honest with yourself. So abilities, interests, what's important to you. And then also looking at the things that you, that you want to minimize, that things, looking at the times which have been really stressful and thinking, what is the implication for that? What are the, some of the things I want to minimize? And I see a lot of GPs, family uh, GPs in, 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 in my work. And a lot of them have gone into GP because the training is shorter. That's understandable. 
because it's just shorted specialty so they can end up working where, you know, where they're likely to want to live, all that sort of stuff. But you've actually got to look at it for the nature of the work itself. People don't think about the loneliness. As a GP, very often you're on your own in a room. Is that something that's going to worry you or something you might even enjoy or something you won't like? They don't. If you really, really love the diagnosis, you can find being a GP a bit frustrating because you know that it needs specialist input, but you're not the person who's going to be doing that specialist diagnostic bit. Um, you've also got to be able to deal with uncertainty because you can't send every single special, every patient who comes banging on your door with every cough and spot and God knows, rash and whatever up for a second uh, opinion for a specialist. You've got to be able to say, on the balance of opinion, there's nothing here that makes me concerned that this, that this uh, mole on your back is a melanoma. You've got to be able to live without yourself without wanting everything to be double-checked. So you need to think about those things that you find stressful and make sure that they're going to be minimized in your in your specialty choice. And you also, I suppose the final thing is to is to is to think broadly. You know, there's 60 odd specialties. And very often people only think about the specialties they've encountered in med school on their intern year. But there's so many more. Thank you for all those tips. Um, I think it's certainly something that um, not many junior doctors stop to think about. They, um, most of us go through medical school having certain preconceived ideas about certain specialties. And like myself, for example, I went through medical school very determined to do ophthalmology. And when I got there as a second year resident, I, you know, realized that it wasn't for me so um, it's very important to take all those things into account I kind of wish that I don't know maybe it might be a bit irrelevant but in some ways I do wish that this sort of topic is covered at least partially in medical school so that we go into internship or you know the rest of our careers with our eyes wide open um, and fully aware well, I, I, I think it, I don't think people should be making specialty choice decisions in med school, but I think people need to be given the tools with which they can make those decisions later on. And I think that they need to start, there's, there's some data that they can gather about themselves. And in the chapter on specialty choice, um, I give a, an example of somebody who's, who's, parent had died of cancer and they wanted to do oncology and how actually there, were, there was some evidence in med school that they might find oncology as she described it to me like scratching open a wound. So I think that there's some preliminary data about yourself in med school but what you really need in terms of career planning is the tools to think about yourself and the tools to analyze different jobs so that when you have even more data from starting working as an intern you can then uh, use that additional experience to make some good choices well last question um so can you please name one or two things that keep you sane in your crazy busy life i would say um supervision is really important so like all psychologists i had supervision yesterday you go and talk through the people you're working, you know, the clients you've got with somebody else. And that is absolutely, because otherwise you can, 
worry and think, should I have done something differently? Or you can be stuck and just think, I'm not sure this is going well. So supervision is really uh, important. And I kind of want three. I'm going to cheat. Um, I would say I I would say family is really important. I've been married for nearly 38 years. I've got children and grandchildren. Another one due any day in America. Um, I'm going there next week. Um, so so family is really important. And then the third thing is is exercise actually, whether it's walking or uh, what 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 swimming. Actually, that is really, really important as well. But just for kind of offloading and resetting one's inner uh, sort of stress level, bringing it down. Mm. I mean, it's you know been it's, proven yeah, yeah, scientifically. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know it's been proven scientifically, but one actually, but but actually, I find uh, it's just a, it's I've incorporated it into a regular part of my life and it's it, it's tremendously beneficial well thank you so much caroline for taking the time to do this interview that was really insightful my pleasure um and for our listeners who are interested in getting a copy of your book i will leave a link in the show notes thank you that's great if you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.